Our passage is found in 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to begin reading with you at verse 17. Because it's all connected. It says, For it is better, he's writing to Christians who are suffering for their faith. They're being persecuted by unbelievers unjustly. And that's what the whole letter has been framed about. It's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So immediately we know we can't suffer because we're doing evil. But we can also suffer for doing good. And this is good if it's God's will. I know sometimes we have trouble with God's will, but our Father knows what is best, and He does that which is good, good for us, and good for our development, good for our growth in Him, in our conformity to the likeness of His Son. And sometimes that involves suffering, suffering unjustly, suffering for our faith. And then he gives this reason, for it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil, for Christ also suffered. Notice, for this reason, for this cause, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, this was a passage that we considered last week, and Pastor Jeff went through the sufferings of Christ and four things that are stated about that in this passage. They are, in essence, a brief and concise summary of the gospel of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, Christ's suffering was in the plan of God, the eternal purpose of God, by which he would reconcile us to himself. Now, Christ was innocent. He is the righteous one. He had no sin, and there is no reason for him to suffer and no reason for him to ever experience death. And yet Christ entered into sufferings, intense sufferings, greater than any person because it was not just a physical suffering, but the spiritual suffering of being under the punishment of God due to sinners. And we learned that his death is once for all. That is, it never has to be repeated because it is complete. It is sufficient. His once for all suffering forever handled the punishment due to sinners. Therefore, it cannot ever be repeated. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why did he suffer? In order to bring us to God. So we learn from this passage that Christ's death is sufficient, that Christ's death is substitutionary. He did it for other people, not for himself. He did it for the unrighteous as other passages say, for sinners, we might add, such as us, okay? And it is effectual. It works. It accomplishes what the goal is. It brings us to God because it removes the barrier 
that was there keeping sinners from coming to the holy God. God can now freely and justly forgive us of our sins, not by looking away from the sin, but because the sin has been atoned for. And Christ's death is also victorious. He is victorious in his death. And this brings in the whole concept of the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the framework of this passage that is set before us. I go back to reading again. For Christ also suffered, he suffered like us, except his suffering is greater than ours. Christ suffered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, that is physically, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, in English, this is quite a complicated little sentence because the Apostle Peter just sort of takes off and we, in our thinking, really need to break it into two or three sentences. I don't think I'm going to do that for you today, but that would be helpful. And there are some translations that will do that for us. But we are going to consider what it says, okay? So he brings in two concepts here. He's put to death of flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which. Now, let me be up front with you and tell you that this passage before us has some, uh, it's not really translation problems. It's the fact that there are words that can be translated in more than one way legitimately within the passage. So we have to make a, uh, a conclusion based on the wholeness of the passage. And here when we come to in the Spirit, this could be the Holy Spirit himself, or it can be that God, that Christ was alive spiritually. That he was alive spiritually, which, you know, First Peter, we always have to go back. This is another thing. You have to go back to First Peter chapter 1, beginning at the very beginning to connect everything together. And this is how this epistle begins, this letter. Peter's writing to these scattered believers, and he says... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, being born again through the operation or the activity, the ministry of the resurrected Christ is front and center in this epistle. And everything in this epistle must be interpreted in light of the atoning death of Christ and his victorious resurrection and ascension into heaven. This is what binds this epistle together. But the resurrection life of Christ through the operation of the Holy Spirit 
in the presentation of the gospel and is embraced by faith is what results in our being born again and entering into a new spiritual life. It is a life lived with Christ. In fact, lived Christ lives his life in us, through us, by the operation of his Holy Spirit's indwelling presence. All right, Christ suffered once for all for us in order to bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit in which, in the Spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What prison? What spirits in prison? Well, these are spirits that are in the prison related to the time of the flood, according to this passage. Okay? They formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Obviously, this is why we read the scripture passage today from Genesis chapter 6. Now, I would urge you, in light of this teaching that I'm going, that I am giving, that you would read again on your own Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. Those are the passages that deal with the flood, with Noah. And that's what Peter is referring to. So he's assuming that his listeners know something about this story and that they can draw from it. But he's saying this, In summary, God showed grace and favor to Noah. He looked at the world and he said, you know, this place has gotten absolutely, totally rotten. It is totally in rebellion. People think only evil continually. Now, if you think it's bad now, it was really bad back then. Okay? Really bad. So bad that God said, I think I, I really shouldn't have made man. Here I am, I made these people, and look what's going on. I think I'm going to destroy the whole earth. Now you understand that God knows exactly what he's doing, but when the revelation of Scripture comes to us, he, he uses the language that we understood from our viewpoint. We call this anthropomorphism. God speaking as if he were a man and having the thoughts of a man. And so he says, you know, I I regret I made man. I'm going to wipe him out. And we'll just, you know, I just wipe him out. But notice this key verse found in the scripture passage that we read. It says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in God's eye. Now, it's not because Noah was better than everybody else. It was because God chose Noah. Now, Noah did have some qualities about him that God uses, but that wasn't why God chose him. God chose him because he chose him. He chose him to be the one who is going to maintain humanity alive so that he can fulfill his promise given in the Garden of Eden. He spoke it to the devil, to to the serpent, when he cursed him. But he said... There will be enmity between your seed and the woman's seed. And ultimately, this will be the issue. The woman's seed will crush your head while you strike its heel. It is by means of this man, this seed that would come through Eve, that God would bring about the reversal of the fall and would redeem humanity. 
Well, now, if he wipes out all of mankind and there's none left, what happens to God's promise? What happens to God's eternal purpose to redeem? Well, it would have perished, wouldn't it? So therefore, God showed favor to Noah and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But notice that grace comes with the command that Noah is to do. He says to Noah, I want you to build this ark. And these are the dimensions. He tells him exactly what to do. It's found in Genesis in detail. You do it this way. You put this, if this is the material you'd use. And when you get through, you're going to go and do this. And I'm going to cause the animals to come. There's total detail. Now Noah believes God. Now why do we know Noah believed God? Well, we know he believed in God because he obeyed. That's simple. We know Noah believed God's word because he went and gathered the material and he started building the ark. Not only did he build the ark, but during the time he's doing this, it seems to be 120 years, that's a long time to build an ark, but I don't know how much time it took, but whatever, he spoke to the people. He told them God's sending judgment. There is going to come on this earth a flood. Now, they didn't know what he's talking about. But he told them, you know, things are going to happen and you're going to be wiped out. The only way of salvation is this ark God told me to build. I'm building this and God will save those who enter it. He proclaimed this message to them during this period of waiting, during this long period of 120 years. But they did not believe him. The only people that believed were his own sons, three of them, and their wives. Evidently, they had no children. Because the only ones that are saved, only ones that enter the ark, are Noah and Miss Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and the Mrs. There are no children. That's who enters the ark. Eight human souls. Eight human people in the flesh. So, that's the flood. And for 120 years, Noah proclaimed the message. But the people did not obey, did not believe. And so when the flood came, they perished. Now, as I read the text, if I just read it, and I don't try to explain it away, And I don't try to say, well, you know, I don't know how this could be. If I just read it, it seems to say that after they have perished, that they are in prison. This means after death. Now, there's more than humans involved in this rebellion. There was angelic spirits fallen angels, evil spirits. And they seem to be quite active in the Genesis account. And I'm not going to go into all the different theories that people have to say about it and because I don't really know how much of it is true or not true. All I know is that there are angels definitely involved in the rebellion of mankind. And they are judged by God and they are put in prison awaiting the final execution. Now, we don't necessarily understand the ways of God, but you know, just think about human. You know, there are some people so evil in our world 
that they need to be either locked away and kept under lock and key for the duration of their lives for the protection of mankind, or they should just be exterminated. But these angels are not exterminated, but they are put in the prison house. And these disobedient humans evidently are also in this state. So this passage seems to be talking about something that is occurs after life on this earth, but in a, let me call it a subterranean area. The scriptures have a word for this. It's called Hades. Hades. Now here's the confession of faith that the Christians have developed hundreds, more than a thousand years ago, It came out of the rule of faith in the uh, post-apostolic period. It's found in many sections of the New Testament itself. We call it the Apostles' Creed. They weren't necessarily written by the apostles, by the way. But it does reflect apostolic doctrine. The heart of that confession is about the person of Christ. And about what he did. And in that confession, we state that Christ was, he died. He suffered and died. He was buried. And he descended into Hades. Now, the word Hades, by the way, can be translated hell. Or it can be translated the realm of the dead. Because Hades is, just means after death compartment. <laughs> and if you look at Luke 16, there seems to be two compartments in the story that Jesus tells there in Hades. Uh, there's a lot of little detail in here. I don't want us to get lost in it, but I do want us to just see that this is what this passage on the surface certainly seems to be speaking about. It seems to be speaking about the descent of Christ into the realm of the dead in which he makes proclamation to the spirits in prison. Now, what kind of proclamation would he be making? Well, he's completed the atonement. He had no sin. And though he is in the realm of the dead, he's in Hades, he will victoriously rise because there is nothing that can keep him there. He is already victorious. Remember that even before Jesus went to the cross in John 12, he talked about the fact that I saw Satan falling from heaven. He was anticipating the victory of his atoning work on the cross. What Christ does is so certain that he can speak about it before it ever comes to pass as if it's already happened. And so when he makes proclamation to the spirits in prison, he is making the proclamation from the vantage point of the resurrection on the third day and his ascension into heaven some 40 days after that. This is taken up at the end. We'll see it as we continue to read. All right, so that's passage. Then he goes on. 
Because they formerly did not obey, this is why, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. I'm reading from the ESV. Now here's the central passage in this passage. The reason is because it's the assertion that's being made. Peter is making an assertion. He's not, he's not going through all the different statements about arguments. He is making an assertion. He says this. Baptism, which corresponds to this. What is this? Well, to the water of the flood. That's what it's corresponding to. Baptism, and the literal word there is antitonic. I'll speak about that briefly. The antitype. Baptism now saves you. As a flat out statement. And then he tells what he means by it. Negatively and then positively. Negatively, not a removal of dirt from the body. So it's not that, that God, through the mechanical act of baptism, saves you. It's not like he just takes the dirt off your body. You get dipped under, the dirt goes away, and you're saved. That's not it, he says. It's not that. It's not a mechanical operation of a particular ritual. But, what is it? This is the the positive. But, an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now again, we come to a word that has, uh, the word is really not density of meaning because it's very simple. This word, if if I'm not mistaken, this word in the Greek here that's translated appeal it can also be translated very legitimately as pledge. Okay? It means both of these things. So you have to determine more on the context. But in the Greek, the word itself, this is the only time this Greek word is used in the New Testament. And it carries with it the concept of questions and answers. It carries with it the concept of sort of an interrogation, uh, some, some sort of uh, question and a response on the part of the person who hears the question. We'll see the significance of that in a minute. All right, so now let's go back. What it says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Since, therefore, four one, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of their time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now that is the context of the passage and of this key verse, which is the focus. 
1 Peter 3.21, baptism now saves you. Father, I'm laboring with this passage of Scripture, and I need the assistance of your Holy Spirit, and we need the assistance of your Holy Spirit as we seek to unpack its meaning, understand it, and its application to our lives and to the work of Christ, objectively and subjectively. We ask it in the name of Jesus, the one who died, who suffered for us, who is buried, who descended to the dead, who was resurrected and is ascended on high. In his name, the victorious Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, Peter, in this particular passage that I've read in the context to you, focuses on baptism. That's no way around it. He focuses on baptism. Now, baptism is not a translated word. We have become familiar with it. It's become a part of our vocabulary, but it is not a translated word from Greek. It is a transliterated word. That means it has been made from the Greek language and we've adopted it. If I were to translate this word for baptism, I must translate it as dipped, immersed. Submerged. It means immersion. That's the meaning of the word. The word was used for when you were dying something and you dipped it in the dye. It's the same kind of word you would use if you were describing washing dishes. You take the plate and you put it in the water, clean it, bring it out. That's the word. Immersion. So if I'm literally translating it, I would have to say immersion. So, this is what the passage says. It says, immersion now saves you. Immersion now saves you. Now, let's talk about the fact that when we hear these words, we have reactions. Sometimes they're positive. Sometimes they're negative. Now, where do those reactions come from? Well, they come from preconceived ideas. They come from an idea that we've already believed, and therefore when we look at the passage, we interpret them in light of that. But many times, the words that we are reacting to have a a more expansive meaning, let me put it that way, than what we are used to. So I'm focusing here on the word saves. Because that's the key. It says baptism or immersion now saves you. And immediately you say, what? I'm being saved by water? That's not what it means. Because he put the negative there when saying, I don't mean removing dirt off your body. Okay. But what does he mean? Well, he means what he says, actually. Our problem is that we associate the word salvation with only one concept in our particular evangelical tradition of thought. 
we immediately associate it with the word justification. Now, salvation embraces justification. But salvation is bigger than, greater than, more comprehensive than justification. So what do I mean when I talk about justification? Justification is a legal term that speaks about your relationship between or before the holy, righteous God of heaven and earth. In the sight of this holy, righteous God, because you have broken his law, because you have not obeyed all of his law with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you are considered guilty. You're a criminal. You're a lawbreaker. You are undeserving of his life, of all the things he promises to those who believe in him and who love him. Unless that debt is removed, unless that transgression is canceled, and the only way it can be canceled is that it must be paid for. God does not forgive simply because he says, oh, I think I'll just overlook that. God does not overlook sin. Sin causes God's punishment. It causes God's upsetness, his anger. God hates sin because it's the antithesis of his very nature. But yet God has chosen to love a great portion of humanity in a special way. Now, he has care for all humanity, but there's a special love God has for those whom he calls his chosen, his elect. They are chosen and elect in Christ from before the foundation of the world. But they cannot be before him. They cannot be accepted before him. Their sins cannot be removed and they cannot have eternal life with God unless their sin has been atoned for, unless it has been paid for, unless it's been removed by the punishment that is due it. This is the whole reason Christ came. Christ came into the world to save sinners. But to do that, Christ came into the world to save sinners by being their representative. He, therefore, taking their debt, their sin, their punishment upon him in his own holy person, body and soul and spirit, paid the atoning sacrifice for it. He took the punishment on the cross. It's not just a physical punishment. It is an emotional, a spiritual punishment. It is the very punishment due our sin. He took it upon himself on the cross. He was immersed under it. And he totally exhausted it so that it has been atoned for. Therefore, God can legally, justly forgive us 
And when he does so, this is called justification. We are righteously forgiven based on Christ's atoning sacrifice for us. But that is just the legal standing that grants us the right to be God's children, the right to have this relationship with him. That's not the end of salvation. Because even justification comes about when we believe. Now, how do we believe? We believe by the operation of the Holy Spirit who works in us as we hear the gospel, as we hear the message of Christ. He regenerates us. The evidence that we are regenerated, the evidence that spiritual life has come, is that we turn from our sinful way of life, our orientation away from God to God. We call this repentance, and we put our faith, our trust in the person of Christ himself. This is called repentance and faith. It is a result of regeneration, It is what we call conversion. That's an action that occurs in us, through us. We repent and believe. Salvation is not only justification. Salvation is regeneration. It's the bestowal of spiritual life, never-ending spiritual life that comes to us at that moment And it never, ever leaves us. Jesus said, if you believe in him, you have eternal life. You have it. (laughs) Though you're still here, though you still struggle with sin, though you still need to have transactions of forgiveness and all this thing that happens with just life, Live with God in the sinful world. You have eternal life living within you and it will never, ever perish. Why? Because it is the person of the indwelling Christ. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit who has made your spirit alive. You Therefore, you have spiritual life. Now, the living of spiritual life is called sanctification. Now, sanctification, sanctification, I know this is theology, okay, but that's what the Bible is. Sanctification is both objective and subjective. Now, what do I mean by that? Sanctification is something that is given to us, declared to be true about us, and is true about us, And sanctification is something that we are experiencing on an ongoing basis. Another word for it is Christian growth. (laughs) If you want to call it Christian struggle of life, okay? That's sanctification. That's what it is. But we enter it at a particular point in time. That point in time is... When we believe and confess Jesus Christ. Now, we have to look at the Bible as to how that's done 
when it was done, and what it means. So now we come to this text. 1 Peter 3.21. Okay. Baptism, or the immersion of a person coming to faith in Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord, is the outward transition moment into the Christian life. That's my thesis. Okay? I'll repeat it. Baptism, which is defined as immersion of a person coming to faith in Messiah Jesus as the Savior Lord, is the outward transition movement into the Christian life. Baptism, biblical baptism, is the dipping of the dead followed by their rising in the crucified risen Lord. It's very important that baptism be done correctly. Because when it's not done correctly, it does not convey the proper meaning. If the proper subject is not baptized, then it has to carry a different meaning. If the proper action is not done, then the action will be contrary to what you're saying. But in the sacraments, that is in the Christian ordinances, what you do and what you say must convey the biblical meaning and the spiritual experience or it does not function as the head of the church intended for it to function. And I believe in many respects, baptism has fallen upon hard times because of faulty teaching in a great majority of churches and because of insufficient and superficial teaching in our own circles of believers Baptists and Bible churches and all these evangelical churches that do believe in immersion as the proper mode, but who have taken away from the meaning of baptism by reinterpreting it to mean your testimony as a Christian. That is not the meaning of baptism. Though it is an inference a legitimate inference, but that's not why you're baptized. You're baptized in obedience to the command of the Lord because you are becoming a Christian. So let me go back now to what I should have started with a long time ago. Baptism and the proclamation of Jesus as a promised Savior Lord have been directly connected from the very beginning of Christianity, from the very beginning when Christ appeared. In the wilderness, John the Baptist, baptizer, not Baptist denomination, but the dipper, John the dipper appeared, proclaiming repentance in preparation for the coming of the kingdom of God. And people confessed their sins and were baptized in the Jordan. Christ came and representative man, he was baptized also because he's going to take to himself the sins of all these sinners who believe. 
But Jesus, in his ministry, also adopted the baptism of John with a little bit of tweaking because he is the Messiah. But at the end, when he has been crucified, buried, and now raised from the dead, before he ascends into heaven, during that period of 40 days, he gives a command to baptize in connection with the preaching of the gospel. And we find this both in Luke 24 and in Matthew 28. So, twice, the command to evangelize, which is really a command to disciple, is coupled with the command to baptize. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. That means go and disciple the peoples of the world by preaching the gospel. And as you preach the gospel and they believe, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In Luke 24, it says you should preach repentance and faith beginning at Jerusalem to all the nations and you are to baptize those who believe. And when we open up the book of Acts, what do we find? We find the preaching of the gospel and its reception directly connected to baptism. Baptism and the proclamation of Jesus as the promised Savior Lord have been directly and intimately connected from the beginning. The writer of this letter that we call 1 Peter is the one who preached to the crowds at the Pentecost feast when the Holy Spirit was outpoured. And as he related the story of Jesus' ministry and recent death and resurrection and fulfillment of God's saving purpose, multitudes cried out, Brothers, what must we do? What shall we do? Luke relates that Peter concluded his message with this confidence. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know beyond a doubt that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And now when they heard this, they were acutely distressed and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, what should we do, brothers? What must we do? How should we respond to this? And Peter said to them, repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself." It's true to all those who hear the message and believe the message. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted him, saying, Save yourself from this perverse generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added. Several weeks later, we read in Acts 8 of Philip's preaching in Samaria. This is what we read. Acts 8, 4. Now those who were forced to scatter, went from place to place preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began to preach the Messiah to the people. And when Philip proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God and about the name of Jesus the Messiah, men and women believed and were baptized. The pattern is preach the message, people believe the message, People are baptized because they believe the message. Throughout the book of Acts, we find this pattern repeated. Jesus Christ's death, burial, resurrection proclaimed. People are summoned to repent and believe, and their movement into faith 
is marked by their immersion in water upon the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, we're not told in Acts a particular formula that they said. So the formula is the one given in Matthew 28. But they do it because they are coming under the authority of the triune God because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So word proclaimed, conviction stimulated, faith conceived, faith expressed by immersion into Jesus Christ. That is the pattern we find in the book of Acts. Now the integral or vital connection between the gospel and biblical Christian baptism is expressed front and center in this passage in 1 Peter before us. And as an encouragement to believers who are suffering unjustly for their faith, Peter writes these words that I've read. At the heart of this, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with all principalities, etc., subservient to him or in subjection to him. So, baptism then. Baptism now saves you. What does that mean? That it means what it says. I submit this what it means. It means what it says. We have to understand what the meaning of the word saves is. Okay? Notice the tense of the verb. Remember, grammar makes a difference. Grammar in Greek makes a difference, and grammar in English makes a difference. People that are not particular about their grammar often give wrong meanings to words. The text does not read, baptism saved you. Now, what would that be, the meaning? That would be that the particular act of baptism resulted in your salvation. That isn't what it says. It doesn't say baptism saved you. Water can't save anybody, by the way. Well, they can, if you're on top of it. <laughs> that was the point about the flood, okay? But the water is the element that we should go back to the flood. Well, why does he talk about the flood? Because there's this connection. We want to scratch our head and say, Peter, couldn't you just be a little plainer? Okay. But he's, he's, he wants, you know, God the Holy Spirit produced this, right? Isn't that what we believe? Okay, so if you've got an argument with it, take it up with the Holy Ghost <laughs> and with Peter. All I can do is try to deal with it just as it is, as is written. It says, Jesus in the Spirit went to the souls in prison who were there after the flood. Now God's patience waited for them during the days when the ark was being built. Now what was the purpose of this flood and the ark? Well, the purpose of the flood was to destroy the world and to destroy all human and animal life on the world except for representative species that would keep creation alive. So we have Noah and his wife, his sons and their wives, they get in the ark. They're the only humans on board. And the animals that God calls, by the way, Noah wasn't out there trying to call the animals. God calls the animals to come to Noah. 
and he loads them up. Okay, so they're on the ark. The flood comes. And the flood is not a local flood. It is a worldwide deluge that covers the entire earth. The water breaks up from the bottom of the earth. The water comes down from the top where there was a canopy of. There was just water everywhere. So the whole earth is filled with water up to the mountaintops. And every living, breathing thing perished except for what was on the ark. Now, Peter says that was a type of Christian baptism. The what was? The water. Now, I know this. We can be technical and say, well, it wasn't water to save, but it was the ark. Yes, it's the ark on the water. But here's the truth. The water that, the water of judgment, the water of wrath that caused all under it to perish is also the water that transported Noah and his family to safety on the other side of the flood. So, the water of judgment to those under it becomes also an instrument, not an agent, but an instrument that brings Noah and his family safely through the flood in the ark of safety into a new world so that when the flood is passed and Noah and his children get off, they come into a new earth. It's been reconstituted. I mean, continents have moved. Things have changed. But the world begins to go again. Grass begins to plant. Animals begin to breed. Humans begin to breed. The world comes alive again. It's a new earth. It's a new situation. And mankind continues. How do they get there? Well, the flood. (laughs) The flood of damnation. The water of the flood of damnation also became the water of salvation, of deliverance, of rescue. But the difference was what? The ark. (laughs) In the ark, you rode the waves. In the ark, the water became the means of your salvation. Now, I believe that's the picture before us. Okay? Now, Peter says, this was a type. Now, type means something that actually did occur. It's an event involving real people, real places, and real things. The flood really happened. There's a real Noah, and they really are saved by means of this ark through the flood and brought into the new world. But it was not sufficient in itself because it points to the greater reality. That greater reality is Christ his work, and the salvation he brings to his people. That's the anti-time. That's the fulfillment. So, that's what he's saying. Baptism, baptism now saves you, is the fulfillment of this time. Now, that brings us then, what is, what is baptism in this context? What is it really signifying?
Obviously, baptism is a passageway, just like, just like the flood was a passageway from the old world into the new by means of the ark. Remember, it's all by means of the ark. It's in Christ. In Christ, we, we ride the waves. In Christ, we land on the other side. The waters of judgment have also become for us an instrumental waters of salvation. The difference was our faith in Christ. Our faith in Christ. So what's on the other side? What is the Christian life? It's not just justification. The Christian life is life with God in Christ through the working of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers as they live in this world. This is what we call sanctification. But sometimes when we take this word sanctification, we, we think about it maybe two loftier terms, if that's possible. It should be lofty. But the fact of the matter is, sanctification is rather dirty business. <laughs> By that I mean, it's work. <laughs> it's work. We, we are left in a situation in which we are redeemed and we have eternal life living within us and our bodies have the promise that they will be resurrected in the last day. Completely perfect, completely holy. Our minds will be transformed. All of this will happen. And in the process, we are being made conformed to the image of Christ. We are being pressed. Pressed. By the working of the Spirit. And by our own life in this world. Well, this is salvation in the present tense. Let me go back to this grammar, okay? He, he says salvation now, a baptism now saves you. Not salvation, not baptism saved you, past tense, punctiliar, but present, present indicative. Now, this present indicative sense means it's a present indefinite. It's an always true, every day, all the time event. Reality. Baptism saves you in the present active sense. It is always true every day, all the time, because baptism has brought you to Christ. It's been the passageway of entrance into the Christian life in the community of the faith. Christ, God in Christ is saving a people, a community for himself. Not just little individual souls. But us, we are personal and individual, yes, but we are joined with all other persons and individuals whom God is saving. This is his body, his people, his temple that he's building in the world. We are brought into this reality and baptism is the passage. Baptism is the objective outward mark of our entrance into the life of sanctification. 
I believe that you can find this objective statement about sanctification in the book of Hebrews, where it talks about how the blood of Christ sanctifies us as a complete work. And yet we know sanctification as the Spirit's work is an ongoing process. But it is guaranteed to finish totally successful. This is why the whole passage begins up here with with Christ, death, burial, then it ends with his resurrection and ascension. Mm -hmm. Now, the last thing, an appeal to God for a good conscience. If you'll notice in the scripture readings that we had from Acts, we have the example of baptism as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Paul was told by Ananias to rise and be baptized, calling upon the name of the Lord. That means that in baptism we have an acted prayer, an active prayer in which we are, by our action, calling upon Christ to save us. Does he answer that prayer? Oh, yes, absolutely. And that prayer... That salvation means we're united with Christ in his death, his burial, and resurrection. Our salvation is in Christ, in the person of Christ. It's not in us. We have it as a free gift, but it's in Christ. Our salvation is in Christ. And the Christian life is described by this way in Paul, in Galatians 2.20, that we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. The Christian life is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ living in us by the presence of his Holy Spirit. This is the Christian life. And the Christian life is a life of sanctification. Baptism is the passageway into this life. It's a life that continues. It's a present reality indefinitely. (laughs) It's always true, every day, all the time. Baptism saves you. Now, one of the words, it could be an appeal, but also the word can be translated pledge. Pledge. And that's the way many translations will have it. In fact, the majority have it pledge. Now, where does that come from? Well, besides the fact that it can be questions and answers in which you actually are making a vow. You're entering into a life as a a disciple. To use the Matthew concept of baptism, Matthew 28, you are a soldier being inducted into the army of the Lord. (laughs) And as such... You are, at your baptism, making a vow of utter loyalty to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's on the basis of this concept that the word sacrament has come into our language. The sacramentum was 
an oath the soldier took when he entered the imperial army of Rome, in which he swore allegiance to the Caesar and allegiance to his commander-in-chief. An allegiance that was as strong as his life. It could cost him his life. A vow of utter loyalty. Now, it can very well be that this is a pledge to God for a good conscience. It could be from a good conscience. That is, from the reality of Christ's work giving us a good conscience. But it continues on. It continues in the life we live. God has cleansed our conscience by the work of Christ. But now we have the pilgrimage before us. We have the life before us. We have the warfare before us. This is Christianity. Christianity lived. Okay. He finally ends with this. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, this is his own application, okay? Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That is, we must always, the battle in the Christian life is primarily a battle in the mind. The mind must be brought under subjection to the truth of God. When our mind is brought under subjection to the truth of God, our will follows. Our desires follow. Okay, I, I don't know all the dynamics, but arm yourself with this same attitude, this same way of thinking that Christ had. For whoever has suffered in the flesh, that is, has suffered physically, especially for the faith. He's talking about some intense suffering here. This is not having a toe ache, okay? He's, he's talking about intense suffering. So as to live has ceased from sin. And they say, wait a minute. I may have suffered, <laughs> and I may be suffering by my faith, but I don't know that I've ceased with sin. In fact, the preacher reminds me every Sunday that I've sinned and says we need to confess before God. But he tells us what he means, okay? What does he mean? Has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So we've ceased from sin in this way, that the orientation of our life ceases to be our human passions, our human desires, our human fulfillments, and it's become a desire, a pursuit to do the will of God. That's the result of dying to ourselves and rising in the power of the Holy Spirit to live for the glory of God. I end it with this. I hope and pray that we have been able to glean from this scripture something that will enable us to truly appreciate what Christ has done for us. To know the reality of salvation that is present and continuous and the hope of glory that awaits us. Because we have been buried with Christ, and we have been raised with Christ. We do that in the waters of baptism, and in the last day, when the trumpet shall sound, 
we shall do that in physical bodies, resurrected in an immortal state that shall live forever with God in Christ on a new heaven and a new earth. Amen. Well, we need to sing this and confess the faith, so let's go to our worship guide and... We're going to sing what we sang last week because it's great. Great great is the gospel of our glorious God. And first of all, you stand and we'll read a biblical creed together. Let's confess this biblical creed. And it's actually based on this same thing that Peter's talking about. You think about it, you can see the connections. Okay? Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So now let's sing this great hymn. Great is the gospel of our glorious God.